1973, on the Day of Atonement, which was the holiest day of the year for the Jews, Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel. While the Israelis were fasting and praying in their synagogues, thousands of Syrian tanks rolled across the northern border and into the Golan Heights. The aggression caught Israel completely off guard. At the war's outset, there were only 188 Israeli tanks in the Golan Heights, trying to hold off over 2,000 Syrian tanks. The Syrian troops outnumbered the Israelis nine to one. The battle that followed was nothing short of miraculous. Legends were born and heroes were made. It was obvious that God's providence led Israel to victory. One Israeli lieutenant, Vika Greengold, maneuvered his lone tank single-handedly to hold off an entire Syrian command. On the radio, Vika kept speaking of the Zwicka force, the Zwicka force, giving the Syrians the impression that they were fighting against an entire unit instead of a solitary tank. Once again, Gideon defeated the Midianites. God won a victory with very few. The war lasted for only three weeks, from October the 6th until about October 26th. But during that time, not only did the Israelis hold off the Syrians, but they plowed into Syrian territory, driving to within 25 miles of the city of Damascus. Well, over the last 34 years, the Syrians have maintained a hostile relationship with the Israelis. And this past summer, Israel once again engaged in a 34-day war in southern Lebanon with the Syrian-backed terrorist organization Hezbollah. The port of Haifa and other towns in northern Israel were hit by Kedusha rockets. On our trip to Israel this past December, we drove by a couple of the villages where you could see some of the damage that was done. Just this past week, by the way, several Israeli news reports are warning of a Syria, Syrian military buildup again on the border with Israel there north of the Golan Heights, similar to what occurred prior to 1973. It's been in the news over in Israel. The concern is that the Syrians are bringing in Scud-D rockets. They have a longer range than the Katusha rockets, which would make virtually every town in Israel a potential target. Very dangerous situation. And all this is to say that not much has changed in the last 2,900 years. For Israel and Syria are still mortal enemies. They're still hostile toward one another. And skirmishes are common along the border between Israel and Syria. As a matter of fact, this is the subject of tonight's chapters Conflict between Israel and Syria, chapter 20. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots. These were probably tribal chiefs that he had rallied together. And he went up and besieged Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadid, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And that brave and courageous king Ahab responded, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. What a wimp. No backbone whatsoever. He says, I want your loveliest wives. Your, your ugly wives you can keep. But I want your loveliest wives. I want your gold. I want your children. And Ahab says, okay, you can have them. He was certainly no Zvika Greengold, was he? The Israel, Israeli king gives in without a fight. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadid, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, you shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, 
And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. Now, Ben Haddad, he wants even more than his loveliest wives and his silver and his gold. He's organizing a home invasion. He's saying that his troops are going to come tomorrow and they're going to walk into your palace, Ahab, and they're just going to take whatever they want. Verse 7. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land. Finally, he gets some advice from his counselors. And said, notice please and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver and my gold. And I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. Man, Ahab, it's time to show some backbone, man. Be something other than an invertebrate. Act like a king, will you? Have a spine. Stand up to this guy. Therefore, he said to the messengers of ben Tell my lord the king all that you sent for, for to your servant the first time I will do. But this I cannot do. You can take my gold. You can take my loveliest wives. But you're not just going to walk in and ransack my house and take whatever you want. You're going to at least leave me some petty cash and a few ugly wives. <laughs> and the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then ben had said to him, sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. Whoa, ben Haddad is not in the mood to strike a deal, is he? He wants it all. And so the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not, not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. <laughs> I like that. That's the bravest thing Ahab ever said. In other words, you got to play the game, buddy. All this trash talking. You know, wars are not won with trash talk. No soldier ever won the battle by gumming his enemies to death. You got to put up and fight. Let's see who's standing when the battle is over. When we take off our armor, let's see if you're still as boastful as you are when you put it on. Verse 12. And it happened when ben heard this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. Battle drums are sounding. Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in caps, you see that in your Bible? Is it that way in your Bible? The word Lord in caps, know that in the Hebrew, it is the word Yahweh. Or its anglicized form is Jehovah. But this is the covenant name for the God of Israel. The I am that I am, Jehovah God, Yahweh. This is what the word Lord in the all caps is indicating. It's interesting, despite Ahab's idolatry, blatant idolatry, God is saying that he's going to show mercy, that he's going to fight for Israel, that he's going to defend his people. And so Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord by the young leaders of the provinces. And then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. Who, 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 me? Yes, you will. And then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people and all the children of Israel, 7,000. Now, this is funny to me. God promises Israel a military victory. But Ahab wants to know who's going to go about organizing the troops. And God answers him, you are. On occasion, we have folks who come to us with a need around the fellowship here. Sandy, we we need to start having a prayer meeting for our missionaries. Or we need an outreach to the homeless folks. Or we need to go witnessing in the neighborhood. And I agree. We need to do all these things. But that's when someone asks Ahab's question. Well, who's going to organize it? 
Who's going to set the battle in order? Who's going to organize the effort? And I believe I hear God saying, you. (laughs) Why is it we all can point out needs, but when it comes time to doing something about those needs, we all want to run and hide? Are we willing to take responsibility for getting it done? That was the word to Ahab. Ahab knows that the leadership, that a war is going to take leadership, but he assumes that someone else is going to step up and lead. Here's a good rule to follow in the church of Jesus Christ. It's okay to point out problems as long as you're willing to be part of the solution. Fair enough? (laughs) And God answered, you. And so the army of Israel went out at noontime. Hey, this is high noon. We've got a shootout at high noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadid and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. Now, obviously, they're overconfident, I would say. Ben-Hadid thinks that he can fight a battle and booze it up with his friends all at the same time. No big deal. What poor leadership on his part. War and whiskey are not a good combination for victory. They're a good combination for defeat. Well, the young leaders of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadid sent out a patrol. And they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. And so he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. I guess that means take them alive either way. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them. And each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadid, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. Israel wins a great victory. But here's the lesson to be learned. One battle doesn't make a war. One battle doesn't win a war. Ahab is warned to go home and to get ready to fight a second time. This enemy is not going to give up with just one attack. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do for the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. In verse 23, Syria's military analysts, they all get together and they try to reason out why they were defeated. We just lost a big battle against the Israelites. What happened? They never mentioned the king's drunkenness, by the way. (laughs) That's something he didn't want to hear. But they do come up with another reason for their defeat. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Understand the ancients had this concept known as localized deities. They were common in the ancient world. This was particularly true of Baal worship. There were different Baals, each with its own territory, its own boundaries. And here the Syrians have concluded that the God of Israel must be the God of the mountains. They figured, though, that he lacked jurisdiction over the flatlands. Thus, when they strike again, they won't strike on the mountains. They'll strike in the plains. They'll stay out of them, their hills. You'd think modern folk would see through the silliness of such an argument. But not so. For here's what we assume. We we think that God is Lord over Sunday. But we can just do as we please The other six days of the week, he won't care about that. Or that he governs the spiritual. Oh, but the secular, the political arena is our domain. God stays out of that. 
Or he cares about how we act in church, but not how we conduct business or how we do politics. Or, oh, worship and communion and spiritual stuff and doctrine, that all concerns God. But sex and entertainment, oh, that's up to us. Same thing. As a kid, I used to run through the sanctuary. Wasn't supposed to, but I did anyway. And I'd always look up because we had a big picture of Jesus right behind the baptismal pool there. And he, he looked like he was watching you, you know, even as you ran through the sink. But, you know, I'd kind of duck and I'd run through the sanctuary and say, Hey, stop running in God's house. As if, as if God was in control or in charge of what was going on in his house. But once you got out of his house, you could do as you please. You, you were out there. You were out from under God's jurisdiction all of a sudden. That's not true. What is God's house? It's not just this building. It's not just this. The world, the universe is God's house. And God is sovereign. God is Lord over all of life. Not just one little piece or a couple of little pieces of the pie. God is not just God of the mountains. He's the God of the mountains. He's the God of the flatlands. He's the God of the sea. He's the God of the air. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this. Many today think that God is a God of hills, but not of the plains. They think God is a God of the past, but not of the present. They think God is a God of a few special favorites, but not of all his people. They think that God is God of one kind of trial, but not of another kind. We're as foolish as the Syrians if we put limits on the scope of God's sovereignty and his involvement. Well, verse 26 tells us, So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadid mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. It's a retaliatory attack. Now, if you look at the map, Aphek was located 11 miles northeast of Joppa in the Sharon Plain, <laughs> in the flatlands west of Samaria. The Syrians now want to fight on the flatlands, not in the mountains. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. And now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. In other words, the Israeli army was outnumbered and outpowered. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God is going to show the world that he is Lord of both mountains and plains, peaks and valleys. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. And so it was that on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. What a huge victory for the nation Israel, for the armies of Israel. 100,000 people. Now, I'm not real good with distances to stars and millions and billions and trillions and all, but I know how many 100,000 people are. The Rose Bowl holds 100,000 people. Imagine New Year's Day, the big football game, and the whole Rose Bowl full of people, and yet those People slaughtered now out on the field of battle. What a devastating sight. Massive carnage at the hands of the Israelites. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. And then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. <laughs> you can run from God, but you can't hide. And Ben-Hadid fled and he went into the city into an inner chamber. Then his servant said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. Ahab had sought mercy from Ben-Hadid earlier. Now the roles are reversed. Ben-Hadid is hoping that Ahab will show him mercy. Or at least be more merciful than he had planned to be. And so they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads. And they came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadid says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. 
And I don't know what the connection was between them unless he thought, well, we're both idolaters. We both worship the same pagan gods, thus we're brothers. And now the men were diligently watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at this word and said, your brother Ben Haddad. And so he said, go bring him in. Then Ben Haddad came out to him and he had him come up into the chariot. And so Ben Haddad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore And you may set up marketplaces for yourselves in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. And so he made a treaty with him and sent him away. And it was a huge mistake. Because there will be conflict again with the Syrians. I hope you understand that we have an enemy too who refuses to give up. The victories that are won today are not the final victories because our enemy is persistent. And the devil will attack and attack and keep attacking. And so just because we're victorious today doesn't mean we won't have to fight another battle tomorrow. We will. As long as we're in this life, as long as we're on this earth, we fight against flesh, the flesh, and against the world and against the devil We're in a constant battle. There's constant hostilities. We have to be ready. Well, now a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. (laughs) Hey, give me a shiner. I need need for you to hit me a couple of times on my face and rough me up a little bit because I got something going. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Obviously, the prophet was not lying. And he found another man and said, strike me, please. And so the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Now, the prophet needs this black eye. Because it's part of the ruse that he's about to pull on the king of Israel. His injury was designed to make a point. Listen to what follows. Then the prophet departed and he waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. He escaped. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Ahab should have struck down King Ben-Hadid rather than strike a deal. Ahab was God's instrument of judgment in the battle with the Syrians, and yet Ahab failed to fulfill his calling, and he allowed Ben-Hadid to go free. And now, God says, because you let him go free, you'll pay his punishment. And so the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. Chapter 21. By the way, one day a group of new arrivals made it to heaven. And they were being checked in by the charge angel. When he shouted out, he said, okay, fellas. He said, every one of you guys that was a henpecked, harried, nagged husband on earth, every one of you that was bossed around by your wife while you were on work on earth, I want you to stand over here on the right side. And then everyone who wore the britches in the family... I want you to stand over here on the left side. Well, of course, the crowd, they all kind of shuffled around for a little while and until everything had kind of gotten sorted out. And 
there was one, there was a whole group of people over on the right side, but then there was one lone man standing on the left side. The angel looked at him with sort of a look of admiration, and he said, all right, wow, you must be special. What makes you think you should be standing over here on this side? And the guy kind of looks up sheepishly and he answers, Well, this is where my wife told me to stand. (laughs) Several years ago, there was a billboard over here on Highway 78. And it promoted Virginia Slim's cigarettes. There was this beautiful but obviously feisty young lady with a cigarette in her hand. And she was deliberately blocking the path of what appeared to be her husband, resisting his forward movement. And the ad read, who cares who wears the pants? Well, let me say this clearly for modern ears to hear. God cares who wears the pants. In the home and in the church, God desires for husbands to lead and for wives to support and to follow. Male headship is God's idea for marriage and in His kingdom. Chapter 21 exposes a marriage where the wife wears the breeches. Ahab is a weak husband. He was a weaker husband than he was a king. Jezebel was a willful, wicked wife. And this proves to be a horrible combination The wimp and the witch, the vacuum and the vixen, it combined, they combined to cause terrible trouble in the house of Israel. And guys, if you don't step up and lead in your family, lovingly, patiently, but wonderfully lead, then it will be trouble for your house as well. Well, we're told, and it came to pass after these things, that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And so Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house. For it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. Now chapter 21 proves That a greedy man never has enough. King Ahab is sovereign over a kingdom. But what he really wants is the vineyard next door. Because I want a vegetable garden. I need me some tomatoes, some cucumbers. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Ahab wants to buy buy it off of Naboth, but this is his inheritance. This is what he's going to pass down to his kids. If he sells his land, he'll have nothing to, to give to them that they can till and they can cultivate and they can grow food for their families. What kind of a father would give away his children's inheritance? And so Naboth says, no deal. And Ahab, he pouts. And so Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased Because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. The big baby goes home and he pouts. Talk about a spoiled brat. I'm telling you, this guy was a wimp. And it's when Ahab pouts that Jezebel takes over. Understand, a vacuum of godly leadership at the top in your home will force your wife to try to take matters into her own hands. That's what happens here. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, And said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. He's whining because he doesn't get what he wants. And then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. You're the king, man. The NIV translates this as a question. 
Is this how you act as king over Israel? You're just going to be a wimp, a big baby whining and crying and all? She's being sarcastic here. It's a put down to her husband. Jezebel was a wicked woman. But every woman hates a wimp. How many of you ladies are attracted to weak men? How many of you ladies are attracted to weak, spineless, wimpy men? Raise your hand. (laughs) Just what I thought. No woman wants a husband who's a wimp. Reminds me of the wife who shouted at her husband, Are you going to be a man or a mouse? Go ahead and squeak up. (laughs) Men, it's time to stand up and be a leader. A loving leader, but a leader nonetheless. Well, she tells Ahab, Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Men, take notice. A husband's weakness gives his wife permission to ply her willfulness. And the results here are disaster. Now, I'm sure that your wife is not a Jezebel. I'm sure of that. Her ways are far from wicked. But that's just it. God does not want your wife to have to resort to her ways. God's way is for you to lead. God wants you to be the head of your home. That's why you need to step up and take leadership. Verse 8. And Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles, who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She forges official documents. She lies in the name of the king. And she wrote the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Fiend God in the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. Again, the men who read these letters think that the orders are coming from Ahab. The king is worse than a coward. I didn't think he could be this corrupt. Jezebel tells the elders of the city to plant scoundrels that will falsely accuse Naboth of blasphemy. Then they're to take him out and stone him so Ahab, little Ahab, can have his vegetable garden. Verse 11. So the men of this city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones. So that he died. And then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. The dirty work has been done. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is, but, is not alive, but is dead. And so it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Oh, I'm going to have tomatoes soon, cucumbers and pickles. Oh, this is great. And evidently, he, he took the thing and made his vegetable garden and all without asking any questions. Isn't that interesting? Just kind of put his hand over his eyes and his hands over his ear. Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Surely Ahab had to wonder how Naboth died so conveniently so he could get his vegetable garden. Or what role did his wife play in Naboth's death? Surely he had to ask these questions, but apparently he didn't. This is a horrible abuse of power. This is a White House scandal. Vineyard gate. (laughs) Vegetable garden gate. An innocent man condemned on trumped up charges. And we can trace it all the way back to the palace there in Jerusalem. I mean, Samaria, I'm sorry. And as with most scandals, it eventually reaches the light of day. It doesn't escape 
the public's attention for long. But it's not the Samaritan Post that breaks the story. God gives the scoop to Elijah. For then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth. Notice who God says the vineyard belongs to. It's the vineyard of Naboth. Where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, Dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. You get the impression God's not messing around here. After a stoning, the dogs, the wild dogs would all come and they would lap up the blood. Well, in the exact spot of Naboth's stoning, dogs will lap up the blood of Ahab. Then Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you, and I will take away your posterity and cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahiah. You remember what Ahiah said when they greeted him? Yeah, you remember, don't you? Ahiah, Ahiah, you doing, y'all? Yeah. Because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. From princess to Perina was God's judgment on Jezebel. She's going to experience a grisly end as well as all Ahab's house. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. There was a period of history there where the dogs were well fed in Israel. Verse 25 is a summary statement with some interesting insight. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. (laughs) This Jezebel, she was an extremely wicked woman. And she had such an influence on her husband. You know, I've observed that most wives have a very powerful influence on their husbands. I don't care if your wife is a bunking bronco and a Brahma bull all combined. Notice here that Ahab was held responsible for what happened in his family. As we've often said, the buck stops with the buck. God holds Ahab accountable. The buck stops with the buck. But notice Ahab allowed himself to be influenced by his wife stirred him up. Jezebel stirred him up. He wasn't the leader in his home. His wife was the leader. She's the one that wore the britches. She's the one that called the shots. She's the one that lit the fire under her husband and, and got the husband to do this and got the husband to do that. You know, the ancient Aztecs, they had a word for wife. Nahuatl. Nahuatl. And this word means woman who owns a man. That was their word for wife, woman who owns a man. And is it any wonder that Aztec society no longer exists today? When men abdicate leadership and when women rule, the family dynamics are weakened and the society suffers. Men need to lead. Women need to support and to follow their leadership Ahab also, we're told, behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now, now if you've been suspicious of God's mercy, the next few verses should extinguish your doubts because God is so merciful. And you've been reading this and you've been thinking, man, God orders judgment. God says that the dogs are going to lap up his blood. Boy, God is kind of... What, what is with God? What's, what's with this? 
Well, if you've doubted God's mercy, if you think in the Old Testament God is different than the New, oh, the New Testament God is so loving and gracious and kind, this Old Testament God, boy, he's vindictive and judgmental. This next verse should erase all that thinking from your head. Because God shows one of the most incredible acts of mercy in all of the Bible in these next few verses. Notice this. And so it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. I'm going to spare him judgment in his lifetime. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Notice this. Ahab repents and God forgives him. God is willing to forgive even a sandbag like Ahab. Can you imagine? Let me suggest that if God is willing to show mercy on Ahab... He's willing to show mercy on you. If you'll just humble yourself. If you'll just repent. If you'll just ask for God's mercy and be sorry for your sin. God will show the same kind of mercy on you. Well, chapter 22. Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the son of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. Now it's been several chapters since there was any mention of the southern kingdom, or the king of Judah. Jehoshaphat, though, was a godly king, and now he appears on the scene. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And so he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth, Gilead? Now Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. We're all, you know, we're all related, part of the same family. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Now, Jehoshaphat, there's been this rift between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and Jehoshaphat, he's willing to mend some fences here. He's willing to, to work with Israel to the north. Judah and Israel need to be united because of the Syrian threat. Jehoshaphat's first inclination is to ally himself with Ahab. But before he gets any deeper in this relationship, he says, let's check this out with God first. And that's a very smart move. Because oftentimes our way, even what we think is a good way, is not always God's way. And sometimes what we can even assume is a good move, it may not be God's move and that makes it a bad move. So then the king of Israel, he gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and he said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? And so they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Now, Jehoshaphat realizes that Ahab's 400 prophets, they're just stooges. They're not real prophets. They're just yes men. I mean, the king pays them out of his own pocket. You know what they're going to say? They're going to say what the king wants to hear. They're going to toe the party line. They were sure to say exactly what Ahab wanted to hear. But Jehoshaphat knows that he needs to hear from God. And so he says, is there a true prophet in Israel? Is there a true prophet that will speak only God's word? And so the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. <laughs> I mean, Ahab, he admits, you know, these, these guys were all on the take. But there's one guy who's still faithful to God, Micaiah. And by him we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. <laughs> yeah, we can call Micaiah, but he always tells me the truth. I hate the guy. You know, he never tells me what I want to hear. And Jehoshaphat said, well, let not the king say such things. Verse 9. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imlach, quickly. Ahab wants to get it over with as soon as possible. 
And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, each sat on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. It was all quite a show. Zedekiah, the son of Chinnah, had made horns of iron for himself. And he said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. He comes running in with his little horns. Gore the Syrians, man. Gore the Syrians. That's what you want to hear. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. And it was common for Old Testament prophets to use props or to use visual aids in their prophecies. Both Jeremiah, Ezekiel, several other prophets were known for these living parables that they would act out. But apparently, even the false prophets employed these kinds of tactics. And so Zedekiah comes prancing in with these little iron horns telling the king to you know, stick it to the Syrians and all. And the other prophets, they're chiming in with the same message. And just goes to show that a speaker can be entertaining and be innovative and be creative and be wrong. <laughs> Dead wrong. So be careful who you listen. There are a lot of great preachers out there that will entertain you and, you know, juice you up, jazz you up. But they're just dead wrong. That's the problem. Well, then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. King's messenger is trying to sort of prep Micaiah, you know. Hey, hey, buddy, for once, don't rock the boat, would you? Don't be so controversial. Can't you just blend in once, you know, kind of go with the majority? We're looking for a unanimous verdict here. But listen to the prophet's reply. Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And that, my friend, is the mark of a true prophet. There are a lot of pastors, there are a lot of churches today that'll tell you what you want to hear, that'll tell you what's popular, that'll toe the party line, that'll be politically correct. But the true man of God will speak only what the Lord has said. Well, then he came to the king and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go and prosper for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And to Ahab's surprise, Micaiah, he agrees with all the stooges. But this sort of raises some suspicion in Ahab's mind. It can't be this easy. And so the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? You've never agreed with me before, Micaiah. Why are you agreeing now? And in verse 17, the prophet tells the king what he's seen, his vision from God. Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. In other words, the vision implies that the king of Israel, King Ahab, has died in battle. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would not prophesy anything good concerning me but evil? In other words, I told you so. There he goes again. Verse 19. Then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, will you persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. And the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now, Mickey was given a bizarre vision. It was a vision of God's throne. And the discussion in heaven was about matters on earth. Various spirits or angels, both fallen angels and faithful angels apparently, were involved in the discussion. 
You remember Job chapter 1 teaches us that even the former archangel, Lucifer, or Satan himself, certainly a fallen angel, also has access into God's presence. Evidently, so do his demons. And here one of them volunteers to spread this falsehood. A lying spirit or a demon is placed in the mouth of the false prophets. What happens here is that God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. God does not originate the evil, but he uses the evil that exists to accomplish his purposes. He sends the lying spirit and puts him into the mouth of the prophet so that Ahab will be convinced to go into battle so that he'll die and be judged. Just because God uses evil doesn't make evil good. Evil is certainly evil. But here's the point of this story. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over the good, and God is also sovereign over the evil. You remember, Satan said that I can't harm one hair on Job's head unless God permits me. God is in control over all things. He's in control over good. He's in control over evil. He even can use evil for good. And if you doubt that, the best place to turn is the cross of Jesus Christ. What an evil act. And yet God has turned evil into good through the cross of Jesus. We can be saved and we can know God. God can even manipulate a lie to bring about the truth as he does here. Verse 24. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? His words are dripping with sarcasm, obviously. And Micaiah said, indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. In other words, you're, you're going you're gonna to be part of, you're going to be judged by God. You're going to end up fleeing from the enemy when it comes to take you. And so the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. He must have been in prison at the time. And say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and the water of affliction until I come in peace. But Micaiah said, if you ever return in peace, the Lord is not spoken by me. And he said, take heed, all you people. Micaiah predicts that Ahab will never return home alive. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And why Jehoshaphat goes with Ahab, we don't know. He should have turned back. He should have known that, this was, that God was going to use this battle to bring an end to Ahab's life. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. Gosh, Ahab's a great friend. And so the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Samaria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot saying, fight with no one small or great, but only with the king of Israel. Ahab is so treacherous. He knows there's a bullseye on his back that the enemy has targeted the king of Israel. And so what does Ahab do? He dresses up in infantryman fatigues, in the dress of a common soldier. But he tells Jehoshaphat, hey, wear your robes in the battle. Look real kingly, man. The enemy, he knows, will shoot at Jehoshaphat and not him. And so it was when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat that they said, surely it is the king of Israel. Therefore, they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And it happened when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing him. You can't fool God. Verse 34 tells us, Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. Notice this. God takes control of a random arrow wasn't even shot at him, per se. Just kind of shot in that direction. But God took control of the random arrow, guided it through an exact hole in Ahab's armor. 
And Ahab bleeds to death sitting in his chariot. And guess what happens to his blood? Afterwards, they drive the chariot back to the city and they're washing it out. And the dogs come and lick it up. Just like Elijah had said. And so Ahab said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. The battle increased that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died at evening. But Ahab's blood ran from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. And then as the sun was going down, a shout went throughout the army saying, Every man to his city and every man to his own country. And Israel retreated. And so the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. Then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed, according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken. They washed Ahab's blood from the chariot at the exact spot, evidently, that Naboth was stoned. And while Ahab's chariot got detailed, God fulfilled the details of the prophecy that had been uttered back in chapter 21, verse 19. Dogs drank up Ahab's sinful blood. Verse 39. And now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house which he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written chronicles of the kings of Israel? And yes, they are, and we'll study them when we get there. And so Ahab rested with his fathers. Then Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. Meanwhile, down south, Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, had become king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai, and he walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken down, for the people offered sacrifices and burnt Incense on the high places. Also Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, the, the might that he showed and how he made war, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Jehoshaphat was the king who believed in the power of praise. And the famous scene from the life of Jehoshaphat was when he went out to battle against this strong coalition of, of enemy kings and he put the worship leaders out in front. Now, no offense to Josh. But I mean, good grief. If we're going out to battle, I mean, we're going to put some beefy guys out front. We're not going to put Josh out front with his guitar, you know, singing his little songs and all. I mean, give me a break. But that's what Jehoshaphat did. He put Josh and all the worship leaders out in front, singing their songs, praising the Lord. And you know what it did? It created such disorientation among the enemy, such chaos that they ended up slaughtering themselves and winning a great victory for Israel. The power of praise. Maybe Josh is more powerful than we think. Well, we'll study about all that over in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And the rest of the perverted persons who remained in the days of his father Asa he banished from the land. There was then no king in Edom, only a deputy of the king. Jehoshaphat made merchant ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never sailed, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion Gebir, a city of the Edomites. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your ships, your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. Then Jehoram his son reigned in his place. Verse 51. Ahaziah the son of Ahab became king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah and reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat who had made Israel sin, for he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. Notice, though Ahab repented of his sin and God had mercy on him, 
all of the repentance, though Ahab was forgiven, it wasn't in time to save the life of his son. Ahaziah followed in his father's idolatry. That idolatry was too ingrained in his son. And this is why parents need to live for Jesus, but especially when your children are young. God will forgive you. Us old parents, you know, we make mistakes. God's going to forgive us. We'll be fine. And God will forgive you if you make mistakes. But the problem is, if you make too many mistakes while your children are young, they're going to pick up on those habits. And it's going to, that your sin will be very hard for them to shake it you know, later on in life. And so you need to live for God while you're young, while your children are young, so you can set good habits. Here's what I've discovered. The window of opportunity to influence your kids in godly ways may no longer be open later in life. That window may have been shut. By the time you get serious about God, that window of opportunity may be shut. And that's why you need to, you need to live for God. You know, we need, everybody needs to live for God. But you need to live for God when your kids are young for their sake, not just your sake. Well... There we have it. First Kings.